Hello and welcome to the Hot Copy Podcast, a podcast for copywriters all about copywriting. Today, we're really excited to talk to a conversion copywriter called Joanna Weeb. I think many of our listeners will know Joanna and will be just as interested as we are in her thoughts on conversion, testing, calls to action, and uncomfortably long copy. My name is Belinda Weaver. I'm a copywriter. My business is Copyright Matters and I created the Copywriting Masterclass course. With me as always is Kate Toon. Hello, my name's Kate Toon. I'm a copywriter, the founder of the Clever Copywriting School and the recipe for SEO success learning hub. Now we're going to keep today's intro short, but as always we ask each other a getting to know you question. And so Kate, what's your favourite TV show? Gosh, I have so many. At the moment, I'm really enjoying Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on Netflix, which is just awesome. It sounds like a terrible idea because it's a musical set in uh, a little town in, in, in Los, near Los Angeles. I could actually start singing the song, but I so won't. Good. It's so good. Um, <laughs> brilliant. What's yours? Can you guess? Oh, Miss Marple, Midsummer Night's Murders or Murder, She Wrote. Uh, well, I'll, I'll or Doctor Who. One. Oh my God, yes, it's Doctor Who. That is absolutely my favourite. So I think anyone who listens to this show would know that your list is absolutely spot on, but I would choose <laughs> Doctor Who over everything. If we were playing Mr and Mrs, do you remember that quiz show where you yeah. had to like, I, I know you so well, I'm so good. <laughs> you do. I'm a simple woman with simple taste. Yes, yeah. Um, All right, so let's get into this because we've got Joanna here and I think this is going to be a great chat. So as I mentioned in our intro, we're talking to Joanna Weeb today. Now, I was actually looking through Joanna's bio on the interwebs and I found that she has sold over 40,000 copies of her Copy Hackers eBooks. She's been invited to teach conversion copywriting all around the world and I've seen her on one of those stages. And when she was 17, she missed the chance to kiss Bono. So there's a lot we want to talk about, but Bono, let's loop back to that, Joanna. Can you tell us that story and welcome? I can. I know. Isn't it tragic? Um, it was a huge life lesson for me. So I was 17. U2 was touring on their Pop Mart tour, which will immediately tell you my age if you know U2 at all. Um, and yeah, I went into the city, the big city, because I lived in a little oil town in northern Canada and we went to the big city of Edmonton to watch this amazing concert. I spent like $200 on 10th row center tickets. It was so worth every penny, but that was like a lot of money to me. Nonetheless, worth it all. Anyway, so we're there. My sister was there. My best friend was there. My sister's best friend was the four of us. My sister and her best friend, it was like midnight and we were at this little, we had borrowed a dorm room from a friend who was in college. Um, and we were there and my sister was like, Hey, I think we should go to this hotel. I'm pretty sure the band is staying there. We should just like wait outside and see if they'll pull up and if we can get a picture or something. And I was like, I actually said, Sarah, even Bono needs to sleep. And those famous last words for me. So she left with her best friend. My best friend and I stayed at this place and actually went to sleep. We're 17 years old. And like, this like exactly explains what a homebody I am. Over 17 asleep. She comes back at like four in the morning. Her best friend's freaking out. Like, oh my gosh, Sarah kiss Bono. Sarah kiss Bono. <laughs> Crazy. They got pictures of it. I had to, since then, I've had to live with this photo of Sarah kissing Bono, knowing 
I could have been there too, but I didn't go. Oh my god! I know. Is that, is that your, so that's your biggest life regret. <laughs> I guess I hope I hope that's my biggest life regret it's it's shaped your entire life since then so from now you just kiss random people whenever you get the opportunity as much as I can if you were here with me I would just be like kissing you like crazy right now no and I never sleep I never sleep anymore no more sleeping exactly (laughs) gotta be ready ready for that that's That's an awesome story tragic but very awesome (laughs) tragic so tragic oh and I want to mention this Crazy ex-girlfriend. Yeah. I have, I, Kate, I have tried to sell people on watching this, but I, as soon as I say it's a musical, they're like, mm, and I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. It's like a funny musical. And you see her like putting her Spanx on. It's amazing. Such a good show. The Sexy Getting Ready song. We have to oh, sing I love it. the Sexy Getting Ready song. song. We and might put a clip of it at the end of the podcast. You have to. That'd be amazing. I found myself in the supermarket in Australia in a small town singing West Verkovia. Thank you. Because when you were saying where it's set and I was like, say it, sing it. It's in the opening (laughs) theme song, sing it. And then you didn't. Yeah, I needed to hear it. So thank you. That's cool. I'll sing it at the end of the show if the show goes well. Okay. That's (laughs) my promise. So hang on to the end. I'd really, I'd really like to keep going with stories of pop stars we have kissed and not kissed because I actually have kissed uh, Damon from Blur. You Hold on. Not- no, 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 What? No, no, no. No, no. Because Damon Oliver was what got me through life in a northern Canadian oil town is like the promise that a cute British boy was out there being Damon Alburn. I loved Damon Alburn loved him when like here's me feeling envious of your 40,000 copies of your book sold and now I've kissed Damon Alburn so it's kind of all over your book so let's be honest oh that's amazing I'm so jealous what was it like what was he like up close I just have to know I have to know he is like too he was too good looking to look at it was like looking at the sun you know I knew it yeah it. it was it was it was awesome anyway We'll You're have lucky. to talk about copywriting, unfortunately, because that's what this oh, is. All right, fine. So um, we've got our questions here. And the first one is um, Copy Hackers. So, so you're the co-founder of Copy Hackers. And before that, you worked for some, you know, pretty giant companies. So you, but your, copy, your bio talks about sort of falling into copywriting. What, do, what does that mean? Did you, did you stumble? Was it an accident? Basically, yes, completely. So I dropped out of law school thankfully. Um, and then I was like, what am I going to do? So my friend was working at an agency and she was, she's like, well, we're looking for somebody to write for us. And I like, didn't even know what marketing was. Like we went and had coffee and I was like, okay, so I don't understand it. So there's a market and you send stuff to them. It was super dense. So anyway, she got me up to speed on that. And so did I think purple cow at the time was like, Oh, that's marketing. Um, that's the book I read at the time. Um, yeah, so I went and applied for this job and got it because it was entry level at an agency. So they're like, will you work for 27000 a year? And I was like, I'll do anything. Um, so they got me for super cheap, uh, rightfully so, because I had no experience, but I had a background in creative writing, and that's what won them over. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of started doing that. And my first day on the job, my one of the two bosses sat me down and said, okay, well, we're going to do your business cards, which I was like, what? So cool. We're going to do business <laughs> cards. And um, 
we need to know what title we should put on it. And he's like, what do you think about copywriter? And we both like looked at each other with this like, ooh, gross look like copywriting. I don't even know. No, that sounds terrible. I do not want to do whatever that is. So we settled on creative writing. Huge mistake. I had no idea. We called me the the creative writer, um, which was just, it set me back so far. Like I really had to, because once you think copywriting is an exercise in creative writing, then it's very hard to get to that place. You have a lot of bad habits to undo by the time you realize that copywriting is... Now, some may argue that's not, but in my nearly 15 years, I have discovered that the best copy is always the copy that sells, that gets people to buy, not by selling out, but that gets them to buy. So if you, if like I did, I thought creative writing was the same thing. We'll just say things creatively. It'll be amazing. Um, then I had to undo all those bad habits when I finally realized what a copywriter did. It's funny, isn't it? Because so many people are so resistant to calling themselves a copywriter. I've got a community of people and the first thing they say is, I can't call myself that. Like, can I be a business writer? Can I be just a writer writer? And it's like, you know, no, content writer is a bit different, but you are what you are. Embrace it. Love it. You know, exactly. It's it's incredibly powerful. It is. It is. I was going to say, it seems so functional. I think that's why people shy away from it. But, yeah, it is what it is. Be proud, people. Um, So you mentioned there, you know, the copy that is the best to write is the copy that that works because it sells. And I think that is exactly what a conversion copywriter focuses on. But can you break down what a conversion copywriter means from your point of view as one? And does it actually differ from sales copywriting because they seem similar? Yeah, totally. I love this. Um, so, so a conversion copywriter essentially is somebody who would work on the same team as other people who are invested in optimizing a business for growth slash conversion. So to get sales up, to get leads converting into paying customers, um, that generating money is the goal. Um, so yeah, it's very similar to a sales copywriter. So the reason that we have termed it conversion copywriting is for us baked into a conversion copywriter are principles that would be baked into that conversion team. So uh, user experience design, you have to be aware of how people interact with the screen online or with the interface, with the device they're on. Um, So this awareness of the user experience, um, Persuasion techniques, which are really part of sales copywriting, absolutely. But how do we do this in an online environment? So I did my master's degree on this, on optimizing online experiences to convert people. And a lot of that did take um, some of the principles of sales copywriting, a lot of direct response, obviously. Direct response copywriting is amazing for getting conversions, but in a really active space where there's so much chaos, so many distractions, so many other tabs you could go click, some of the rules of direct response might not apply as well as if you were to um, modify them based on what you know about how users interact with the page. Um, So conversion copywriting is direct response copywriting meets user experience design meets persuasion um, all done in this like copywriting way. So that's, that's my roundabout answer on what a conversion copywriter is and how it's a little different from sales copywriting. 
Oh, that makes perfect sense as well. It's kind of like a, a broader remit, but also more specific at the same time. And I love the inclusion of the user experience because, I mean, I think we're going to talk about this a bit later on, but you really get to get involved in that as a copywriter. You, you kind of write the words for other standard projects, you hand them over, and then you never see it again. Yeah, totally, right? Which is tragic when you should be involved. And if, even if you don't want to do like the split testing yourself, if that's not a skill set you want to have, although if it is, it'll make you very hireable. Um, but if you don't want to do the testing, still be involved in the process where other people then are taking your copy, putting it out there and seeing if it actually brought in more conversions or not, where you don't just hand it off and walk away because honestly, where's your case study now? Where's the thing that you go talk about if you're a freelancer or even if you're in-house, how do you continue to make a case for having a job where hopefully you're getting paid actually really good money? You have to have data to do that. So conversion copywriting, if it, when it's part of experimentation and that conversion team will end up with results for you, like where you'll be able to say, okay, we either lost, we like decreased our conversion rate. So now what are we going to do based on what we've learned? Um, or we've increased it. So now what are we going to do based on what we've learned? And you can then take that data. And the next time you go try to get a freelance job, or the next time you're in a performance review with your boss, you've got real data to support how you are impacting the business. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one thing that I think copyright, digital copywriters or online copywriters is becoming increasingly aware of is how that they should have that involvement in the wireframing, the layout, you know, the size of headlines, the color of call to action buttons, you know, not just send their copy across in 11 point Times New Roman with no indication of what's the header, what's the sub, what's the, you know, you have to try your best as far as you can without treading on the designer's toes to kind of give recommendations for how the copy should appear on the page. It's not yeah. just the words, it's how they're formatted and, you know, super important. Yeah. I, think. I agree. And wireframing is a huge part of definitely what I recommend to copywriters too. It's so hard. The more, once you've sent a few Word documents or Google Docs to a client and got back all sorts of comments on them, around that time you're like mm, there's got to be a better way and part of the problem is that clients and even internal clients nobody can visualize what you're visualizing right yeah so if you can wire it and do your best to strip out like all the unnecessary design elements that like your mind just kind of wants to add like put placeholder like blocks in place but like don't add the stock photo or the screenshot or whatever just like to keep the designer happy follow all of the formatting that's already like available to see on their page, on their site, just use the same font, use the same, I use Photoshop for my wireframing. So I use the same font, I do it in the same size, just like using a little Chrome extension to see what their H1 size is, what their H2 size is, what their body text is, all of that. And if you can just mimic that yeah. on your wire, clients again and again, I honestly, I never ever get a single round of feedback because they can see, they know, right? Like, oh, it goes like that. And the only time you get feedback is really around if you did something inaccurate or if they're like, oh, that testimonial is good, but we've got this better one with a better picture. And that's the kind of feedback we all want, right? Like the really easy stuff. Yeah, that's great. I, I use um, Omnigaffle for um, my wireframes, which is a bit less 
realistic, but I kind of like that because it's almost like you've drawn it with a pen, but you, obviously it looks better than anything I could draw with a pen. So, you know, because what I find is as soon as I stop putting photos and, and things in colours, they're like, we love the, we love it, but we don't want purple font. And it's like, no, 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 that's not the point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't like that picture of the man with his hand on. It's like, no, 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 that was just a, oh, damn it. In your <laughs> so I really like on the gaffel, but we'll, I'll include a little link to that in the show notes as well. But, um, and I think as well, you know, obviously we're talking about conversion copywriting. You might not want to wire every single page, like, you know, the privacy policy or whatever, but mm. definitely home pages and, and major sales pages and services pages and even contact pages. It yes. obviously adds so much value and it's a big additional string you can add to your copywriting bow or arrow you can add to your quiver for just a different metaphor there. Um, <laughs> because lots of copywriters just don't do it. So if you can write the copy and lay it out, that's a huge thing. And people are often saying to me, what else can I offer? You know, I can offer SEO copywriting. I can offer this, but if you can offer usability and wireframing, mm -hmm. super powerful, I think. I know. Um, I agree. Yeah, cool. So um, let's talk about you know, the dream piece of conversion copywriting, you know, you're writing a sales page or a homepage. What, what would you, we're going to narrow it down to three, but what are the three elements of a perfectly written piece of conversion copy? It's so hard to say with elements. Um, but for me, when I'm looking at a piece of copy and that's always on a landing page or sales page, but also, um, oftentimes on homepages and in sales emails in particular, um, I'm looking for, for most of those, I'm looking for at least, um, is it clear who the one reader is? Now that's not an element, but everything that goes on the page should be based on these things. So who clearly is this made for? And by the way, for any like freelance copywriters, the more you focus on that one reader, the one person a page is designed for, the more pages you can sell to your clients. So it's a really good thing if they've got, you know, five people that they would try to send to a single landing page. Well, you can actually make that into five different sales pages or landing pages. Um, and that's really good for you. So the one reader, who is it? Is it very clear? Then is there a single big idea that will attract and hold that one reader? And does that big idea carry throughout the page? And then clearly, does it tie to an offer, a single offer, not multiples, no social sharing, none of that crap. Um, is there, unless that's the single offer, but is there a single offer that makes your one reader want to actually move forward and click. So those aren't elements as much as they're like the foundational stuff for a page, but your page won't work if those aren't in place. It will not convert as well as if those are in place. If you know exactly who your one reader is, you know exactly what your one big idea is, and you know exactly what your one offer is. And then you do the things to make those really stand out, right? So how do we make our one offer look great? And that's getting into elements around like a really optimized call to action, like a button that's optimized to be clicked. Um, what can we do there? So that would be a critical element on the page is a button like that. Obviously a very critical element is a headline that attracts your one reader and speaks to this bigger idea that you have. And then of course comes the element that is persuasive body copy. So all of the crap, I say crap, all of the stuff <laughs> between the headline and that call to action. I mean, those aren't beautifully put elements, but those really are when it comes down to it, that might sometimes, it might just be your headline and then your body copy is no more than a subhead. 
and your button is right there immediately after it. And that's because you know that your one reader is super high aware. So it's a most aware reader with very high intent. All they need to know is how to get the thing that they're so worked up about getting. And that's now that's all you need for that page. You don't need a video. They didn't need a video. They're most aware, high intent. They don't need that. They don't need a bunch of demo screens. Now, but they might need that if they're in a lower stage of awareness. So that's why you have to know about your one reader before you talk about, for me, any elements that will go on the page. Yeah, that's perfectly explained, actually. Um, I think a lot of copywriters, well, I know I've had this experience where they they have to tell their clients to really narrow the focus to that one that one potential customer, that one reader. And I think a lot of people get fearful that they're going to miss out. Like I can't just focus on one type of person because what about all these other potential customers? And you end up with copy that says, do you have this problem or this problem or this problem or this problem? And it's like, whoa, 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 it's confusing now. Totally, right? And then it doesn't perform as well. And because you weren't able, sadly, unfortunately, but it happens, definitely, you weren't able to push back on your client and coach them to be the right kind of client. Um, Now they're measuring your copy against their crappy brief, right? They are like, oh, attract everybody. And now you have to write for everybody. It's not going to work. It's not going to go anywhere near as well as if you were to focus. But because the client will measure you against the results your copy does or doesn't bring in, it does behoove us as copywriters to engage in coaching our clients to make the right decisions, um, which they can be brought on board with. But if they can't, then that's just someone to keep in mind, like as the type of client you no longer want to work with. Yeah, I love it when you get a brief and you're like, what's your target audience? And they say men and women between 20 and 80. <laughs> well, that's helpful. Perfect. I know exactly what to say. Excellent. Yeah. I often think it helps just if, if there's lots of newbie copywriters listening to the show to, to try and coach the client into thinking of like, can they think of a person that they know that would be this, would be the potential audience? Like, you know, even, you know, I often do stupid things. My, my potential client's always called Sue or Alan. And uh, we describe Sue and Alan. And, you know, it's like, you know, what sort of things would they eat? And, you know, it, it's going beyond that demographic and going into the kind of, you know, the beliefs, the desires, the fears, all that kind of stuff. You can dig deep into that. Um, and then it makes it easier for you because it's like you're writing to the, a friend, you know, so it makes it, the, it makes the copywriting job so much easier, I think. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. That's an exercise we do in, in a course I used to run um, where it was, yeah, you identify like someone you know that would be a good fit for X product that you're selling and then you write them a letter. Um, here, write them a letter knowing everything you know, write them a letter that convinces them by the end of it to buy. Um, and that can be a really, I mean, that's really what we're doing, right? That's, that's the essence of what we're doing. Um, but just making it like, but, but if you don't know who you're writing to, that letter is going to reflect it. And that's true for copy too. Yeah. You can pick it up really quickly. It just sounds super vanilla, doesn't it? And kind of a bit bit lost. Right. Yeah. Now, another thing I, I hear, my students and I've had this request myself is can we can we get one piece of copy and can we have it on our website and our brochure and our email and our sales letter do you, does that ever work one piece of copy across all the mediums um you know I and I know that because I when I worked out into it huge tech company the thing I heard again and again was oh we have to be consistent 
and but consistent to them meant match, match, match. So every single thing we say here, if we're going to talk about um, how QuickBooks saves you time, here's the boilerplate line that we're going to use every time we talk about how QuickBooks saves you time. And it's like, okay, fabulous. That's going to make life easier for you as a reviewer because you'll say, is this the approved language or not? And then I have to go, no. <laughs> um, and then you go back and make me put that language in. Um, but it's not obviously going to be so great for the customer who, right, we've just, that one reader, what stage of awareness is she in? Like, is she really new to the whole idea? Has she just started feeling a pain or has she been feeling it for so long? She's tried other solutions. She's looked all over the place. She's got a coupon code in her hand, ready to use your solution now. Like those are two very different people. You might still be sharing a similar idea with all of them, but you can't say it the same way. I don't know what the benefit is in saying it the same way outside of trying to save a buck on actually getting the copy done right. If you believe copy is your online salesperson, then you should invest in it. And if you don't, then you should write it by yourself and stop bothering the good copywriters of the world with your need <laughs> to like keep things cheap. Um, so I haven't seen, I mean, it doesn't mean that a headline that works on a landing page for new Facebook traffic that cares about downloading um, your funnel guide. Okay, so they might have, there might be one headline on there that's awesome and then some body copy. If that body copy can also work in the email, like once they put in their email address, they get that first email. If that body copy can work in there and if you have reason to believe that they haven't actually read it, on the previous page, then I could, then sure, maybe you put it in that first email. But then I would wonder, well, why did it even exist on the first page if they didn't read it anyway? And why would you repeat it here? What's the point? Um, so that's why I don't have a lot of clients. That's why I only take on a select few <laughs> because I get really angry at stuff like that. Yeah, I think the thing is as well, um, I think there's a nervousness amongst copywriters, especially the ones that I know, about any kind of salesy or conversion copywriting where they are going to be measured. So I know that it's it's quite a common thing um, I've seen in, in like American copywriting groups, you know, where people do literally, you know, get paid based on the amount of conversions that this piece of content generates. Yeah. I don't think that is so common over here. You don't so often get people getting paid $10,000 to write a sales letter or a, oh. a web. How, how do you feel about, do, do, you know, do, do you, it's not sorry. It's not one of our questions that we had teed up, but I'm just interested in that as from a from a freelance copywriter perspective, that nervousness of being measured mm -hmm. on results when you don't necessarily control the client and they may be making decisions which are going to ruin your results. You know? Yeah. And so for something like that, we um, I just I just I mean, honestly, I'm not that likable as a freelancer. Like when I'm working <laughs> with somebody. Most people on their team are like, oh, we got another email from Joanna. But that's because I have to like coach them to be the right kind of client. Um, and that's what they're hiring me for. So that means that I'm going to need to review your copy. Like, well, sorry, the, like the implementation of my copy at every stage before it goes out. I need to know before I sign you on as a client, what is your list like? What is their engagement? Like I need to see actual screenshots or you need to give me access to your tools so I can see this because if you're measuring me based on how this copy does, copy is not an isolated thing. It doesn't live in a silo. It's part of a larger system. 
system. And so that system has to be functioning well before you just drop copy in and hope to somehow make it magically work again. Um, so yeah, so I have a lot of discussions with the client before I take them on and they're usually willing to have those discussions if they're thinking of spending 10 or $20,000 on a sales page or even paying you on royalties. Um, yeah. they're, they're open to that and they're used to that. So I guess the advice there is if you are going to take a client on that basis, make sure that you've agreed your level of control before you sign up because otherwise they could stuff you. (laughs) Right. They're not going to be your advocate, right? Like you have to be your own advocate here. And that doesn't mean, I mean, I'm joking when I say my clients don't like me, Um, but I don't. Are you joking? I don't know. I think some of them are like, oh. But in the end, everything works better. Um, and so eventually, all the work of making sure the pieces are in place and operating properly, it does pay off. And they, of course, know that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of analogies. So I'm thinking you're kind of like that personal trainer that says, you can do all the sit-ups you want, but if you go home and eat burgers, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. So yeah. I need to be, I need a camera in your lounge watching you not eat burgers. <laughs> Uh, you love the personal trainer in the end when you have that washboard stomach. So yes. um, that's my analogy. Anyway, um, you've, <laughs> talked, <laughs> you've talked a lot about writing calls to action. And I know that, you know, that's something a lot of copywriters sh- struggle with. So, you know, what big mistakes do you see copywriters making when they're writing calls to action? The biggest one is not treating it like an important piece of copy. Um, so people talk about CTA buttons as micro copy. I've seen it called that. And I'm like, what? Because it's going to be about three words in most cases. Like, no, this is the this is the site of conversion. A person cannot click, cannot convert online without clicking your button. So, kind of critical to make it as juicy as possible and as optimized for that one reader as possible. So. First biggest mistake is treating it like it's not important because it's just a small couple, it's a couple words on a button. And people just click things anyway. We have done so many button tests and I know that some people are like, uh, button tests, that's bullshit, but it's not, right? Like this is, that is where, try getting someone to convert online without putting a button there. Try making that button gray. Try putting the word submit on it. And you'll quickly see that there's a lot you can do with a button that's not that crap, right? You can optimize a button so people are more likely to click it. And if the rest of the copy on the page filters them in such a way, then you're more likely to get a qualified click as well. So that's the number one thing. The second thing is just like a really simple tip, right? Um, So to avoid making these mistakes, just have your button. We've seen this work really well for earlier in the funnel. So not in cart necessarily, but on um, those pages or in those emails leading up to the point of purchase. Um, We've seen just complete the phrase, I want to, and whatever follows that, whatever your reader would say, I want to blank, Good. That becomes your button. Make that the, like the starting point for your button copy. Oh, I love that. Yeah, me too. It works. I'm going to meme that. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Who could ask for anything more? I know. Isn't that, that's, it. that's major day, hasn't it? It has. It has. There's some, there's some great, great points, though. Like, get your mindset right about how important the call to action is and then write it well. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So simple. Um, Now, I was at your Prezzo at the Digital Commerce Summit in Denver, which is where we first met in real life. Yes. And you had an excellent presentation about making copy longer and you talked about 
uncomfortably long copy. Now, I'm not going to ask you to give your whole presentation here, <laughs> obviously, but I wondered, I was so taken with this idea because you did explain it beautifully. I wondered if you can kind of briefly summarise why longer copy can lead to higher conversions and especially in this land of short attention spans that you mentioned earlier, lots of distractions, short attention spans. Yeah, yeah, it's something I definitely believe strongly and I've seen it work again and again, um, which of course you saw those the case to some couple of the case studies, I think, at that talk. Um, yeah, so when I'm talking about long copy, I am talking about, I'm usually talking to audiences that want to make everything as short as humanly possible. And so it's like, hold on, calm down, like SaaS software as a service businesses repeatedly love to keep things like headline is only allowed to be five words or fewer or else you don't know what you're doing. So they really like keeping things short. I'm not saying that about headlines, by the way, they are saying that, um, so I have to coach them away from that and help them start seeing that they need to use more words to engage their reader, but those words um, have to be the right words, and that generally comes down to um, being more specific. So instead of saying, um, like, I think I gave the example, I don't, I don't remember if I gave the Wistia example um, in that, but we optimized the emails for Wistia for their onboarding sequence and tested it and got 3.5 times the trial to paid conversions. So this isn't just like, it might be neat if you decided to be specific. No, 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 like it's been tested and it performs really well. Um, so it's, it's taking something like, um, change the color of the Wistia player, period, right? So if that was the copy where it says, change the color of the Wistia player, and that's in the control, we would test something against it that's more like change the color of the Wistia player, go from boring blue to hot pink to dollar bill green. Um, helping people really visualize, right? This is, we live in a world like as copywriters, we know all about word pictures, we know about storytelling, but when it comes time to talk to our clients about it, we're often less convincing about the need for this stuff, right? And it's easy to go like, okay, yeah, we could cut that line. We could cut that line. We'll just summarize it all down to um, change the color of your Wistia player because it's ultimately what you're saying and that's what the marketer wants to put out there. But the thing that we've seen work better is using more words to bring to life those summarized messages that you've got. So you can still use the summary but we would recommend that you bring it to life visually, like engage my imagination, because as you say, we've got short attention spans, but they're only short for things that are boring. Most of us could watch cat videos constantly. Like I could really sit here at my computer and spend an easy hour watching some Bengal cat do something funny um, and watch again and again, different videos, watch the same one again, right? Because my mind is engaged in a, in a fake kind of way, right? None of that's real, but it's interesting to me. I still have a short attention span and yet I'm pulled in by this thing that's engaged my imagination. So our copy has to do the same thing, but we're not selling cat videos. That's an easy sell. We're selling stuff that's less likely to be noticed or cared about. And so we have to, of course, work that much harder not to bore, like to make our copy boring, which is what a lot of marketers sadly want, but to do the things that will bring our copy to life, which without fail, in my experience, means using more words, going as long as you need to go to make sure that the image 
that's formed in their imagination is going to stick there. When they close that tab down or they close your email down, that image is going to live in their heads. And the next time something comes to mind about your brand, they're going to see that image and all the images that go with it. That's our job. Um, So that's why I recommend using longer copy. Do you also think, though, that the the lens of the copy depends on the sort of the the investment that people are making. So, you know, if you're selling a $10 widget, do you need to write a 2000 word sales page? What if you're selling a car? Do you, you know, do you think there's a, do you think it matters or do you think it's just as hard to sell a $10 widget as it is to sell a $40,000 car? What do you think? Well, it can be, it depends. It all for me goes back to your reader and their stage of awareness and their level of intent. So if I want a $10,000, $40,000 car, but I want it today because I have really high intent. I don't need to read everything. I need to know how much does this thing cost? What's the mileage on it? Is it going to have good mileage? Can I plug it in? What kind of like all of those, those things that a person who's further down the funnel needs to know. Um, but a $10 piece of some, a $10 widget, if I'm just starting to feel the pain that would lead me to look for a $10 widget, I might actually need more nurturing. I won't absolutely need more more, more nurturing, um, but I might need more before, especially if other competitors out there um, are, uh, let's say, cheaper. They're a $5 widget or they're better known than your $10 widget, even though they're also $10. So what do I need to know to get there? And now, so when I'm talking about long copy, getting longer with your copy, I'm not necessarily saying that you should have long form sales pages all over the place because... You don't need long form sales pages all over the place. You do need to allow yourself the freedom to explore a marketing message from all angles, like the whole value prism idea where you like shine a light through your marketing message and see what beams out the other side in all these different directions. Um, And if you can do that, then that kind of stuff needs to be captured on the page. And that's the kind of stuff that makes your copy more memorable and stickier. Yeah. And if all else fails, just shove a cat video in the middle of the sales page. That's, I would love that. I think I'm going to run that as my next test. I think do it. Let's see what happens. <laughs> we'll see that in your next A-B test. Let's <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, it reminds me, you were talking about there, of something that Sean D'Souza said when we chatted to him because he was saying that more often than not, um, when people, people don't read his sales pages because he's done a lot of the nurturing before they actually get to the sales page so that when people get to the sales page, he was saying you've got to have them so ready just to instantly convert that they don't really need a big push. Yeah. I, yeah, and I totally. So as you're talking about that, I've like, so there's a thought that I have to really figure out. Um, but what I've been visualizing for the last like two years of working on, especially on funnels for people, on writing that copy, um, it feels to me like <laughs> this is not going to come out well because it's not, it's a fleshed out thought, but it needs to be like drawn on a whiteboard. But the way I see it is engaging a reader, any reader you've got is of course a matter of pulling them, grabbing them and then pulling them through the stages of awareness to get them convinced that you are the right solution for a pain that is deeply felt and you're going to be a great solution for that, the only solution for them. Um, So you're moving them from that, right, that low, that unaware stage or just problem aware stage of awareness all the way through solution aware, product aware, most aware, and then most aware with high intent. Your job is to move them through that, right? Okay, cool. So if that's true, when we kind of take that five to six part 
phased process and we turn it so it is vertical um, where unaware is at the top and most aware high intent is at the bottom. Work with me here. <laughs> Imagine it here. Um, it looks a bit like a long form sales page because you're moving them from this maybe just pain awareness where your headline is about the pain they've been feeling. You're agitating it. You're moving them towards the solution awareness stage. Then from solution awareness, you're helping them understand the variety of options. Maybe not getting too far into that if you don't want to like risk pushing them aside. Now we're starting to do like the introducing your solution where we've got on the long form sales page, we're at that, you know, midway or further down part of the page where you're talking about product awareness, um, where it's actually your brand that's being told at that point, moving them toward the bottom of the page, the close, which is for most aware all the way to the like PS, which is for most aware, high intent, right? Now, if you were to send a most aware, high intent person to the top of that page, they would scroll all the way down if they were interested. They would scroll, 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 and it would be an annoying thing when all they really want to do is go bop down to that part of the page. So if we think about the whole movement of one stage of awareness all the way down to the stage where you're likely to buy most aware, most aware, high intent in that area, if that kind of lives in our head as we're writing as a long-form sales page, but a long-form sales page is a linear thing, right? It's a rectangle, up and down, and there's no real branches coming off it. This is why I need to demo it. Um, so the branches that come off, come off at those different stages of awareness, and they branch out to talk about different things that different audiences are going to want to know at different times to move them down that sort of funnel that is the, the trunk of what begins to turn it to turn into a bit of a tree. So long story short, what I fully agree with what, um, Sean, I had a friend named Stone D'Souza. And so whenever I hear Sean D'Souza, I have to fight Stone D'Souza. Sean, what Sean is saying there, I fully agree with. It's just a matter of if you can remember that you're really building out a bit of a tree when you're talking about your marketing messages and where to put people. And on those branches are emails, landing pages, nurturing emails, sales emails, moving people down to the right part of the tree. Oh, I really need a demo for this. Um, but um, yeah, then, then you can start to see why a message, why or how many messages a person's likely to need to see before they arrive on X part of your sales page and why at the end of a campaign, let's say if you're launching a course, why in those last two days, you don't need any of the stuff that was up at the top of the sales page. You can drive people down to the part that says introducing the product aware part or the close part, just like chop off all the stuff up top and drive them down to that part because they're already ready. You've already moved them through the stages. Yeah. Interesting. I'm just thinking about all of this with my own course and what I'm going to yeah, me too. <laughs> change straight after. Definitely, definitely adding that cat video. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's really, really interesting and uh, really good advice. I, I want to see the visualization. I know, so I, I know. need to do it. I need to do it. I'll look forward to that. Well, that was uh, wonderful, Joanna. Thank you so much uh, for your time today. Before we end, can you leave our listeners with one tip? One, just one oh. tip they should action when it comes to writing copy that converts. Oh, Lord almighty. Uh, one tip when there are so many. Um, um, well, the, I guess the biggest one, the one that saved my butt throughout many a test that I've run is um, 
uh, to go to, okay, I'll, I'll get really narrow actually is to, um, look through product reviews for messages worth swiping and turning into headlines. So go on Amazon. Amazon is a copywriter's best friend. Um, go there and use the reviews to find interesting insights, problems, challenges, things that people who purchase products similar to the one that you're selling have had, and then just kind of swipe that copy. Use what they've said in their reviews for your copy. Genius. Genius. <laughs> Nick stuff off Amazon, basically. Yes, exactly. That is also, a great tip to leave everyone with. That is really yeah. good. Um, so you've got some awesome resources on the Copy Hackers website, like your Tuesday tutorials and things like that. So we're going to link to a lot of that stuff. But I wondered if you could just let people know where to find you, if you have some preference for the, your social media platform of choice or, or maybe anything you're doing that you'd like to share with everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I am always on, except actually today I haven't been on Twitter at all, which is super weird. Um, but I'm at copy hackers with an S on Twitter. Um, and of course on the copyhackers.com website. And we just launched at the beginning of February, um, a solution for copywriters called air story. It's got, um, templates we're releasing every single week and cool ways to make short work of your copywriting jobs. So check out airstory.co. So, but before we just do our little, uh, review reading, what's your favorite TV show? Oh, my favorite, um, like all time favorite is six feet under. I'm rewatching it for the seven thousandth time I don't know why I'm so obsessed with this show um but right now it's still actually I gotta say like Kate uh crazy ex-girlfriends awesome I love it I recommend it I want to go get a shirt right now yeah me too I the reason why I'm sounding like I'm not concentrating is I'm actually googling the West Covina song so that I can tweet it to you so when you do go on Twitter today that can be the first thing you enjoy we can do edit right now I don't think we can have it on the show. I think it's like writing stuff. Uh, Bugger. All right. Another (laughs) time. Another time. Another time. Yeah. That's just a good, great reason to get you back on the show, Joanna. (laughs) Right. That is a reason not to get me back on the show, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, regular listeners know that we read out a review at the end of every show. And today we're giving a shout out to Tom Morks, who tunes in for the US of A. Especially chose you, Tom, because of, uh, you know, well, I know you're not American, Joanna, but I thought we were kind of close. It's probably very offensive, actually. (laughs) Very offensive. Okay, so I'm just going to read the review. Let's just push on. (laughs) Tom says, these two are great hosts, full of information, great teachers, and very engaging. I love the guests they bring on and always enjoy learning something new when I listen. So thank you, Tom. Um, I think today is going to be a big one for that. Uh, And thank you for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating review on iTunes and Stitcher. Your review, of course, helps others find us, and we give you a shout on the show just like we did for Tom. Now, if you have any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Um, We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we're also on the hotcopypodcast.com website where you can leave your comments on the blog post for this episode. And if you have a favourite TV show or you have some comments about our favourite TV shows, um, find us on Twitter, Hot Copy Podcast, or on our Facebook page. So thank you, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. (laughs) Until next time, happy writing. So you're still listening? Great. Because I wanted to tell you about my new podcast, The Recipe for SEO Success Show. 
sadly, this one's just me, Kate Toon, but it is packed full of useful, practical, doable SEO tips and advice. You can find it in the iTunes store, on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Just search for The Recipe for SEO Success Show. Duper. Wait, are you having a drink or something? <laughs> so she said super duper. Oh. I said super duper. That's oh. very British. Damon Albarn says that. Sure he does. Sure he does. <laughs> you would so know. Last... You've been close. I've been really close. You have. <laughs>